This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 4, Episode 23. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. forgot to mention that this is brought to you by Excess Sites, our title sponsor. And I'm joined today by Matthew Marister. That's correct. That's me. I'm back again. Yeah, we are recording this on Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. Uh, So if you're catching it after the fact, well... Happy New Year. We hope everyone is doing well and that you've had a wonderful holiday season, a Merry Christmas, and all of that. So here we are, back for another episode. Excited to talk with Matthew about a topic that is becoming, I guess, a passion of mine. That's something I've been diving deep into in recent months, actually. Uh, We're going to be talking about how to see and what to look for. Really, a lot of things dealing with visual processing, uh, which I think is a really important topic and something that's not not given nearly the respect I think it deserves, especially when we consider the situations that we are often concerned with and talking about. So I'm looking forward to diving into that. Uh, It's actually, honestly, something that will probably come back, I think, as a, a topic in the future as well as uh, we break further things down. And I, I think there's just a lot of meat on the bone. So, uh, but we'll see what we get to today. It'll be a great episode. Thanks for being a part of it with all of you. Today's episode sponsored and brought to you by Excess Sites. Not only our title sponsor, but also a sponsor specifically of this episode here today. And as we're talking about visual process processing, uh, sites are important. Sites are a relevant role in being able to see and interpret visual data. And if you need to use your gun, well, by golly, you need the best visual data you can get out of your sighting system. Now, uh, I, I tend to carry and use a red dot optic most often these days, which makes things very simple and pretty easy to see and understand visually. But excess sights are also great sights. If you are an iron sighted shooter, well, they make a great front sight with high contrast, high visibility, uh, combined with a rear sight that doesn't get in your way. And that's honestly, that's one of the biggest things I look for in quality sights is I need high contrast, high visibility in the front and a rear sight that doesn't get in the the way of that. I I know I just said the same thing twice, but that's really what it comes down to. So uh, check out Excess Sights, guys. Check out their F8 night sights, which are my preferred sight that I use. Uh, For me, the F8 night sights provide a little bit more of a silhouette on the target because they're a bit higher profile. So they just stand out to me a little bit better than say the newer line of sights from from XS, which is the R3D night sights, which were specifically designed to be a little bit lower profile and also uh, with a more traditional three dot arrangement uh, with the rear sight being two tritium uh, uh, sights on either side of the notch. The F8s just have a, a tritium vial on the bottom. Uh, so uh, the lower profile and three dot sight arrangement specifically is one that they went to for get, you know getting law enforcement business because some law enforcement agencies uh, require you know they have specific requirements regarding you know it's got to be this type of sight made out of steel, three dots, three dots that are you know night sight. Uh, uh, capable and that sort of thing, and so, but they're also certainly appropriate for and just end up just just about anybody. And then here's the beautiful thing between the F8 night sights and the R3Ds, as they all feature high contrast, high visibility, brightly colored front sights with rear sights that don't get in your way. Like I said, so uh, it's more of a do you want a high profile sight or a lower profile sight? And do you care about having two dots versus one dot in the rear with uh, with low light night sight capability? So uh, for me, I like the F8s. A lot of folks like or really 
really love the R3Ds. They've been getting a lot of, getting a lot of popularity. And of course, there's other options as well available from Excess Sites. Check them out at excesssites.com. Other episode sponsor is our very own Shooting Fundamentals video training course, which is available at concealedcarry.com forward slash fundamentals for a short link. If you go to concealedcarry.com forward slash fundamentals, that'll take you right to the product page for the Shooting Fundamentals video course. You are welcome to purchase that a la carte and view that and watch that uh, for, for life if you purchase that outright. It's a great uh, video course breaking down the shooting fundamentals in a simple format and teaching them honestly in the manner that I teach the shooting fundamentals, which is a little bit of a different take from maybe what some of you have learned in the past. But I have found good success with taking that approach with my students. The uh, shooting fundamentals course, here's the thing. The better you are in terms of your fundamentals, the better you can perform under stress. That's just a fact, right? The more automated your fundamentals are, the better you'll perform under stress. So a lot of the things we're going to be talking about today and with today's topic, have I mean, it's going to tie in with your ability to perform under pressure, under stress. And so I hope that you would check out the Shooting Fundamentals video course to learn how to make your fundamentals better and more automated so that you can perform your best when it counts. So check out the Shooting Fundamentals course, concealedcarry.com forward slash fundamentals. So Matthew, um, you know, this this topic, we, we started talking about this earlier because I, I mentioned to you about this recent, and by the way, this is not meant to be the focus of this episode at all. And, and honestly, the way we talk about the rest of today's topic might not even really tie all that much into you know in, into the specific incident. I don't know. Uh, I do think that there's some correlation, but it, that's just kind of where we started. We were talking about this uh, shooting in in Los Angeles, the Burlington Coat Store, um, which is very very unfortunate. Many of you have probably heard about it, seen it in the news. It's you know it's it, it made national news for obvious reasons, but basically you had a crazy dude in this Burlington store assaulting people, and in one case taking a bike lock and violently uh, beating a woman repeatedly in the head and and elsewhere. Uh, you see in the video, I mean she's 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 bloodied up bad. I mean he is this is a deadly weapon that he's wielding. Uh, it keeps going like it is. You know, when the cops arrive on scene, like this woman could die. And and as it was, she had serious injuries as a result of being beaten with this bike lock by this crazy dude. So you have police arrive on scene, a bunch of them. Some of them are, are armed with their pistols. Some are carrying a shotgun. Uh, you got one dude that shows up with an AR-15. He ends up taking point and then firing three shots at the perp who who drops to the ground uh, is later deceased, declared deceased. But unfortunately, one of the rounds fired by this LAPD officer also goes beyond the perp, goes through a door into a changing room and strikes and kills a 14-year-old girl who's in that changing room with her mother. Uh, I can't even imagine the horror of that. Uh, I can't even imagine the horror. I mean, I, and by that, I mean on, on all sides. You know, number one, losing a child. Um, that isn't, I mean, you're not even a part of this. In fact, they're they're probably where they should be considering the circumstances, right? There's something going on that I would like to think that they were aware of what was going on. I mean, maybe not entirely, but like, hey, there's a commotion going on outside the changing room right now, right? Because there's a lady being beaten to death by a dude who's, I mean, there's swearing involved, all kinds of words being thrown around, right? Loud noises, that sort of thing. And this mother and her daughter are where they should be, meaning they're secure behind in this changing room. And and so, okay, stay there, right? Get down, stay low, stay in that changing room where you have some some protection, meaning like leaving that might expose you to 
this act of violence that's taking place. Uh, Christy asks on Facebook, when did this happen? This was December 23rd. It was just last week. All right. So just a couple days before Christmas, people are in the store doing their, their last minute shopping. Uh, this incident goes down. It was like, a, I think, two days after Christmas. So I think on Monday is when LAPD released a bunch of body cam footage and they released a whole kind of initial incident report with some some analysis as to what occurred. But there's obviously still an investigation that's taking place and they're trying to, you know, figure out uh, uh, more details related to this. Um, so, again, the point of this is not of this episode is not even to be about this specific incident, at least in great depth, but this sort of sparked the conversation with me and Matthew. I mentioned Matthew, we were talking about it, uh, talking about how the officer that fired the three shots, um, just talking about like, how is it that one of these rounds, you know, went beyond into the background, went through this, this door into this changing room and killed this girl. And I watched the video a few times and my personal belief, which is different than what the LAPD initially has said, they said that they believe a round skipped off the ground and bounced up and went through the door and struck the girl. Uh, judging by the height, there's actually an image that they released showing where the, the round impacted on the door. Judging by that, it seems awfully high to me off the ground. For a round to skip that high. Anybody that shot, you know, bounced rounds off the ground, which is an actual tactic to use, like especially gunfighting around a vehicle. Uh, you could, you know, shoot the ground, skip rounds, you know, to, to, to strike individuals that are on the other side of a vehicle, you know, with minimal exposure, that kind of thing. Or you might even end up skipping rounds off of, off of the, the, the roof or the hood of a vehicle, that kind of thing too. Uh, oh, that's probably less of a intentional thing that's done. But anyway, so we're talking about that and, and, and I, I find it a little bit hard to believe the round skipped that high, um, based on, you know, the circumstances of this. I personally believe that, uh, the third round missed the target because the individual that was shot began to sort of fall to the, you know, he, there was a shot fired and he's turning and then his head and his upper body goes down uh, and the third shot's fired. And I, I, I feel like watching it in slow-mo several times frame by frame that the third round probably missed the target and went beyond and went through that, that uh, changing room door. Could be wrong, okay? But just from watching it, that's what I saw. So this sparked a conversation about shooting speed and splits. That's also not necessarily where we intend to get into today's topic, um, but more about the visual aspect and how quickly we can see things and how quickly we can make decisions based on what we see. So where I think the correlation here, Matthew, and I throw it at you for some comment, is that it seemed to me watching the video a couple of times and seeing the shooting that's that's done there. And by the way, it's not terrible. The shooting itself is not like terribly graphic. Um, it is a graphic video. I'd say what's more graphic is actually seeing the, we'll call her a hostage. Cause for a while she essentially was a hostage. Uh, she's bloodied up pretty, pretty bad. Like that's honestly the most graphic part of the whole thing. Uh, you don't really see any wounding or anything of the actual perpetrator, but um, anyway, I believe when the officer fired the three shots that uh, it was basically predetermined that, you know, in the instant as he started firing the first shot, it was like, oh, I'm going to send three, bop, bop, bop. And it was really about 0.3 splits. It was like, bop, bop, bop. Okay. Which is um, not crazy fast, but it's also not slow. Right. And it, it, it seemed to me that it was sort of like one sight picture, but three trigger presses. Bam, bam, bam. So, visually, what are we seeing? And then how is that tying into our decision making? And 
I personally believe that in critical incidents that there should be a decision tied with every press of the trigger. Now, decisions can happen very fast. Okay. And contextually, things change based on circumstances, your proximity to your threat. Okay. How, how imminent that threat is, meaning like, are they actively stabbing you right now versus are they about to, or is a gun present and they are shooting you and you need to shoot back? All of this, the circumstances, all of that, the context can vary widely. And that's going to make things different from circumstance to circumstance. But as a general rule, I believe every shot fired should be attached to a decision. And the decision making is going to be tied to visual information that we are bringing in. And so it's, in, it's inherently critical, absolutely critical that what we see is relevant and is understood. And then is, it leads to the decisions. I got my furnace kicking off or kicking on, by the way, if you hear that. Um, it's kind of cold here today, by the way. So the coldest day we've had, I think, this year so far. Uh, that vision, the visual information is then tied to a decision that's made. And hopefully the decisions are good because what we see and what we understand from what we see is is accurate. Does that make sense? Is that a good place to start, Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, as you were talking, I had something else, you know, that I, w- I was thinking about saying, but as you were talking, I think that my, my mind kind of went back to last episode we did and w- you and I did where we talked about shooting and moving and mm-hmm. the, and I don't know why, but my mind kind of went to that. And I remember us talking about, um, shooting at the cadence that we can shoot accurately and what we see, like we, you know, we press the trigger when we get an acceptable sight picture, not necessarily, well, I just need to crank off a certain amount of rounds as I move. And like, um, I was thinking of this because I recently saw in a post about somebody saying about, you know, the, the argument between how do you train, uh, multiple strings of fire where somebody say, oh, I, I trained two to the chest and one to the head. And so they get this predetermined mm. uh, either cadence or number of shots that they initially fired independent of the actual situation. And I think if you, you know, like I said, as you were talking, I'm, I'm trying to combine these two and saying, you know, we really do have to press the trigger when we see an appropriate site picture when we assess that our, our, our shots are going to hit. I mean, in that video, like you don't see like a clear cut changing booth behind them, right? Like it just looks like a rack with some product or merchandise, but unfortunately we, you know, you, and you might say, Hey, I have a clear backstop and there's nobody behind him. There's nothing. I don't see anything obvious. Um, so I can kind of let it rip. Um, but mm-hmm. I think even in this, th- this kind of reiterates that like we can't get into a pre, like when we train, we can't get into a predetermined, well, I shoot two to the chest and then I go to the head or I shoot three rounds and then I assess all these things. I, I ha- we have to be assessing constantly. And I, I don't know, you know, obviously at different distances, our assessment is, either quicker or slower, right? Like if I'm super close, my assessment, I'm shooting quicker. I can probably shoot more rounds before, you know, I really have to start taking stock of, you know, you know, um, am I being effective in, in, in the probability of me missing? But as that distance, you know, increases and as the targets or the threat starts to move, now I really have to, be focused on it's not the number of rounds. If I can only get one round on this guy, that's what I'm going to get rather than firing off a burst of three rounds that I, you know, typically could maybe if he wasn't moving or if I was on the range or something like that. So I I know that's not exactly where we're going to go, but like, as you were saying that this, all these kind of like little things that I've been seeing over the past couple, you know, days or weeks jumped into my mind. I was like, you know, it has to be tied to a specific individual reason to squeeze that trigger each time. Yeah. 
Uh, there's been a lot of uh, debate and questioning of the officer and his actions and tactics used and, and, and so forth. But as is typical, there's, there's all kinds of armchair quarterbacking that's going to take place. Uh, including a number of people, a number of people are like they didn't need to shoot him. Um, that certainly could be debated. You know, he's probably a good twenty-five feet away, uh, maybe maybe even close to thirty feet away at the time the rounds are fired. So let's just say ten yards. It's a fair distance. It's not apparent that he has a projectile weapon. Uh, so you know, I mean. When when you see when you initially see the perp on the uh, sh- on the sh- officer's body cam that it, that does the shooting, uh, you know it's not readily apparent that he's holding anything other than this bike lock, uh, which is just a loop with a, a weight on the end. Right, that's basically what it is. Um, so I mean, it could certainly be debated that he didn't need to shoot in the first place. But that, again, that's not really what we're here f- to discuss here today. Um, more about, I, I do think because of circumstances, I, I'll just say this much, in the distance that this suspect was at, that the shooting could have been more deliberate. I, I will say that. Now, I'm not going to say it was wholly unreasonable uh, what was done. All right. I'm not going to say that. And it's, it's not necessary to. I'm, I'll not say it's unreasonable that based on what the officer could see that he would have any reason to think there's anybody beyond his threat. Like you just touched on. Hey, looks clear. looks like I have a clear shot. Uh, this guy's going down kind of thing. Right. You know, like, so um, I could see this totally being, I mean, obviously there's going to be a lawsuit. There's going to be a settlement. There's maybe a big payout to this, to this girl's family. Nothing there will bring that little girl back. And that's terrible. Um, it's a terrible thing that the officer involved is going to live with this on his conscience for the rest of his life. And I will say, I don't know, there's some people out there who will say he's a dirt bag and this and that, and people might even call me a bootlicker and whatever. I don't care. I'll say this. I am genuinely concerned for the mental, emotional health and well-being of the officer to pull the trigger. Okay. This is the sort of thing that goes sideways and wrecks not just the lives of the family of the of the little girl, but of the officer that pulled the trigger. Okay. And that's a terrible thing. All right. And I'm I'm sincerely praying for him and his own recovery. All right. As well as that of the of the little girl and her family. All right. Um, I say little. I mean she's 14. She's probably not little, little, but but she's a little girl. Um, because I think this is something this guy would probably struggle with mm-hmm. and he, he needs to get help, mental health help. Seriously. Anyway, let's move beyond this. So let's start talking about, about how to see and what to look for. So that, that, that's what inspired the conversation. And so I started talking with Matthew a little bit about some of the latest science, if you will, on vision and visual processing. Uh, I even had, I'm pretty sure I had on the podcast, a fellow by the name of Jake Jackson, friend of mine, he runs tier three tactical.com. He puts out some really solid content, good stuff. You should go read his blog. I mean, you're going to find a lot of content about bodybuilding and working out and all kinds of different things. He he doesn't just deal with shooting or self-defense and that, and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but you know he's he's done a couple articles talking about these concepts, so I'm going to give him credit there. Uh, he's not the only dude out there, you know, doing this kind of thing. But but he's he's writing some good content and putting it out there for what I would say is more geared towards the self defense community. Uh, the uh, the 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 most recent article he did, which which kind of was a follow up to a previous one he did. Uh, I was touching on the concept of quiet eye, okay, or the quiet eye um, gaze technique, if you will. I don't know if technique's the right word to describe it. It's a concept, and and this is something that's becoming more and more recognized in the, we'll call it the, well, the scientific, but particularly when we are studying 
performance, okay, whether it's sports, um, they've even extended this and studied law enforcement. Okay, so anything where we need to perform at a high level, a critical level. Again, this could be trying to compete at your highest level in whatever sport that you participate in. It could be performing at your best in a stressful life or death situation. And the concept that's come out of this is that people that perform the best have a unique gaze pattern. And that's what they refer to as the quiet eye. All right. Again, this is something, this is, this is scientifically studied and recognized. Right. Uh, so it's, this isn't just me, you know, blowing smoke up your butts <laughs> uh, or, or somebody else that just happened to write a, a paper or an article and put this out there. No, this is, this is pretty well recognized now and is documented in a number of studies. Uh, and there's a lot of research that's been done and is continuing to be done on the subject. So let me describe what quiet eye is, and I'm going to throw it back at you, Matthew, and, and ask for your your input on where you think this is relevant and uh, uh, why it's important, perhaps, for us to consider. So quiet eye is defined as, like in the simplest manner, it's defined as the last uh, uh, fixation point for your gaze. And gaze is just a term it's used pretty commonly in scientific uh, studies and research just to re reflect where you are actually looking, kind of what you're focused on. It doesn't necessarily translate perfectly to where your actual visual accommodation is at, which is really only relevant when we start talking about, well, my the thing I'm looking at, my threat, let's say, or my target is here, but I'm changing my focal point back to, say, the sights, for instance. Because um, when we talk about, like, sports performance, we don't ever really... Don't, <laughs> when, we, when we are gazing at things, when we are looking at things, we almost always are also focused on those things, right? If I'm, if I'm playing soccer, my eye is tracking the ball and I'm focused on that ball. If I am playing baseball or golf or tennis or whatever, like that, that tends to be what we do is we, we, we have a certain place where our gut, where our gaze focuses both in terms of focal distance, um, but also what we're actually looking at. And that tends to be the same place. But when we introduce the variable of, of a gun with particularly iron sights, then that's where we start getting into this. Well, I was looking at this object, but looking through my sights and changing my focal plane back to my front sight, let's say. Now, there's a lot of science that I think is starting to, sh to become more readily apparent that focusing on your front sight is probably not the best approach for survivability. All right. And I don't know if we want to go down that road here today or not, but what we're talking about today, again, starting with this quiet eye concept, which is the point. So the last point of fixation prior to you commencing some sort of critical action, and it typically lasts for at least a duration of, I think it's 300 milliseconds is the threshold that they use. All right but it's commonly and probably averages out to about around 900 milliseconds. So we're talking 0.3 seconds to 0.9 seconds, somewhere in there. But there's context like a, a golfer, a, neck, a pro golfer is going to fixate on the hole where they're aiming and then they'll, and they'll, they'll focus there for two to three seconds and they'll change their gaze back to the ball and, and their, their quiet eye fixation might last as long as two to three seconds just on the ball before they begin their putt, you know, to putt the ball into the hole. Okay. So it's going to vary on context and vary uh, in terms of the, the specific sport or performance activity that's taking place as far as the duration and, and, and that kind of thing. But the key is, is that quiet eye is essentially, it's, it's not, it, make, it gives the impression that it's quiet and that it takes a long time. It doesn't necessarily have to take a long time. But it's simply that your gaze is particularly focused, and it's, I will say this, 
that's purposeful in what you are looking at. There's a purpose behind why you are looking or focused on the specific thing or object or person or whatever just prior to beginning this critical action. And by that, again, it's what you're focused on before you swing the bat, the tennis racket, the golf club, or draw and fire your pistol. All right, so that's quiet eye. So throw it at you as far as why you think it's you know it's relevant, Matthew. Obviously, you and I have had a discussion already about this and why why that's important for us in the context of self-defense, concealed carry, shooting type world. Yeah. So like I said, I, you know, you've done much more research. You, you gave me this topic and these are words I can't even pronounce half of them. So I'm going to, I'm going to quiet. Eye? You, really? <laughs> well, Why there's a lot of sports Ohio, psychology but. and stuff that goes on with, you know, but here's, here's, um, here's how my brain and how, how I simplify it. Like, um, I think it's pay, what, you know, focusing on what do we pay attention to, at the right time, like, w- like, so when we have to make that decision that, that, that to, 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 to press the trigger or to take the shot or to whatever we're doing, what, what is that? What are we focusing on at that moment? Um, leading up to that, w- you know, the more information our, our eyes can see and information we can give our brain to kind of orient maybe where we are, or if we're moving or if, in a shooting context, the, the, the threat is moving and how dis how, you know, distant to us and all these types of things. But once that decision is made to press the trigger, what's the most important thing that our eyes focus on and, um, and why it's so important that it, that that is what it focuses on. And it excludes you know, for that millisecond, those milliseconds, why does it have to exclude those other things so we can make sure that we're performing at the highest level that we possibly can? Um, I think of it, you know, like I was watching, I'm not a huge like uh, NFL fan, but I, I was watching, a, you know, football. And if you guys watch football, you'll, you'll understand this, but um, they'll always talk about like, the defensive back watching the quarterback's eyes and stuff like that. And I find that amazing considering all the stuff that, you know, a defensive lineman's doing or uh, like a defensive back is doing, right? Like they're watching these guys come into their zone or whoever they're covering, but they're also paying attention to what, like the quarterback's eyes and where they're looking. And it, to me, that almost, you know, and in, in to, and it might not be exactly the quiet eye, but folk understanding, like, what am I looking at at the right moment? Like when that quarterback looks and like he's going to pass, I glance to his eyes, right? I'm not looking at his feet or the, or arms and people running in front. I'm looking at his eyes and that gives me the determining factor of where my body goes next and what I do. And I think that if we were to apply that to shooting, it would be, you know, what's, what am I looking at as I press that trigger in a defensive context? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I am also fascinated by that kind of stuff. Uh, it's again, the context is going to dictate what's important to look at for, you know, what's important for our gaze to be focused on. Uh, there's a video out there on YouTube where we, you know, talking about this quiet eye concept, uh, where they, tra- by the way, the way they do this and the way they've discovered how this all works is by putting headsets on people. Again, whether you're a soccer player or a baseball player or even a police officer, they've done this with, with officers as well. Um, these headsets have a, a forward facing camera that's basically placed right between the eyes. So you get the exact perspective of the uh, individual that is performing the actions. And then they have multiple other cameras that are looking at the eyes of the participant. And, and they, they, you know, through computer software and algorithms, they can put all that together so they can, they can take the image, the video image of what the person is looking at and then superimpose on there where kind of like crosshairs, if you will, where in that, field of view that the person's eyes are actually looking and it's, it's very accurate and it 
what it reveals is very interesting. Okay, so uh, let me give an example. The video out there of, of the soccer players where they do this with, uh, and what they do is they take a, a pro-level player and they pit him against an average level or beginning level player and more of a novice. And basically like in the one case, they're like, Hey, the pro is going to try to keep the ball away from the novice for at least five seconds. So they're, you know, they're just duking it out head to head. The novice is trying to take the ball away from the pro and they're recording all of that and paying attention to what the pro is looking at versus what the novice is looking at. Okay, the, the, the two respective individuals' information. And then they reverse that and they have the, at least I, that's what I recall, mm-hmm. and they have the novice, you know, try to do the same thing. And then the pro is trying to take the ball away from them. Um, what's really fascinating is the pro player, uh, when he's trying to keep the ball away from the novice, you know, he's looking down, he's looking at the ball, but he's also looking over at the opposing player. And you'll see his eyes shift from their feet to their hips, sometimes to their knees, back to the ball. Okay. And then you'll see occasionally the, the vision goes off somewhere else. And it's, it's towards where that pro wants to take the ball. And if you pay close attention, like when you're watching this, you, you might be kind of initially like, oh, his eyes are darting all over the place. But you'll quickly start to realize there's a pattern. It's very purposeful. So, so the whole time he's not just looking at his, at his ball. Cause he's obviously he's, he's bouncing it back and forth between his feet. He's dribbling the ball, right. You know, as, as a soccer player would with their feet back and forth, but it's not just looking at the ball. It's very purposeful. And you could tell that he's strategizing, you know, where and, and trying to read where the other player is going to go and where they're going to try to a- attack, if you will, to take the ball from him. And then he's reading their, body movements to then determine the timing of when he's going to move the ball where he wants to take the ball. Okay. And it's all very directed and very purposeful. Then if you flip that around, you look at what, what the novice's eyes are looking at in this instance, they're primarily watching the ball. The pro is moving that ball back and forth really quickly and they're just trying to keep up. And so their eyes are like all over the place and you'll notice it's very erratic. And usually what happens is because they are reacting to what the pro player is doing with the ball, their eyes tend to be behind, like occasionally they'll lock on the ball, but then by the time they get a lock on the ball, a visual lock, the pros already moved it somewhere else. And then their eyes are kind of dragging behind trying to follow this around. But it ends up being very, very, very erratic in terms of their the novice's gaze pattern. So it's really eye-opening because what it what it shows is that the pro's vision is very, the expert's vision is very directed and purposeful. Mm-hmm. And he and he specifically knows what things to look at on the other player's body to try to predict what they're going to do so he can then plan ahead and proactively take an, a specific action. And again, and you flip it around and it's all just pure reaction and they're constantly behind the eight ball. So uh, apply that across over to a, a self-defense situation. Okay. Now, they, in a similar study, which was done with uh, D- Dr. Bill Lewinsky of Force Science Institute and Dr. Joan Vickers, who is probably one of, is probably the foremost expert in this quiet eye theory. Uh, she's her name is associated with all of the major studies I'm familiar with on the subject, or or other studies refer to her studies. Uh, they did this with 24 police officers, 11 of whom were deemed to be expert police officers, and the remainder remaining 13 were like fresh out of the academy. The experts all happened to be on the on a uh, emergency response team consider it a SWAT team, if you will. And so they put the same equipment on their heads and they stuck them in a force on force scenario. And they were just looking at and comparing the gaze patterns between the expert cops and the rookie cops. And a similar pattern emerged as to the soccer one I just gave, which is that their visual uh, uh, gaze was very 
purposeful and directed. And you'll if you watch the video, it which is published as part of a, a major this was published in a major journal. Okay. So this is legit stuff. It was not just like something that somebody did as a hobby. It was done as part of an actual uh, uh, research study. But you watch the experts' eyes, they're primarily focused on like the hands or arms of the suspect. Now, the suspect in this situation, is his back is actually turned to them. So they don't have a ton of information. Um, and the situation is like this guy is arguing across the counter with just think of it as any regular customer service type representative, if you will. And he's just arguing with them and he's getting very upset and irate. And the, the scenario is that a few seconds before he escalates it, he starts pounding his hands on the on the table or the desk and then he'll reach in his pocket, turn around, and face the officer. The officer had to determine in very, very split-second fashion, what's he doing? What's his intent? What does he have in his hands, if anything? Uh, several, you know, a number of the times they would turn, he would turn around with a gun in his hand. Other times he'd turn around with a cell phone in his hand. All right? So the numbers that come out of that are pretty interesting and eye-opening. Uh, that... A lot of mistakes were made by the rookies where they shoot the guy more, way more frequently than the experts did when he was just holding a cell phone. And other times where the, the threat turned around and had a gun and should have been shot, but the rookies were behind the power curve. Okay. Because they didn't recognize it quickly enough and, and, and were behind in terms of how you know, they're, they're completely reacting to it. Comp- contrast that with the experts they were, their gaze was very focused on specific parts of the suspect's body. And when he turned, uh, they were basically, you know, they, they were ready and they quickly gathered the inform- the necessary information and more often than not were correct in reading that, oh, that's a gun versus a cell phone. And then of course, you know, applied the appropriate level of force. And when you look at the gaze patterns of the rookies is erratic and sometimes not even looking at things that are relevant, like darting off to random places or looking at the chest of the, of the, of the perpetrator instead of, you know, at his hands and things like that, that would actually tell them something useful. And it just seemed to be a lot more of an erratic pattern versus the experts were very purposeful and directed. So what this leads to is that they, the experts see what's relevant in terms of information sooner which allows them to then have more time to act and make better decisions. Yeah. And, and you know what I th- think is interesting is that this is a skill that can be, I mean, everybody has different performance levels that they can achieve, right? Like w- we all have a, a threshold and, and, and a maximum, but um, these things can be taught. So, you know, it's, it's like, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll circle back to what John said. He said, under stress, we tend to have tunnel vision because of what our brain does. And that's, that's true, but more specifically, even than just the fact of tunnel vision, it's where is our tunnel vision focused? And I think if we can understand just like a, a soccer player whose experience can say, I know that if I watch the knees and the hips and, you know, um, that will tell me where this person is going to kick the ball with their foot instead of just trying to catch up with the foot. Same way with, with us as, you know, citizen defenders or a police officer. If I know that, you know, the hands typically are what they're going to strike me with, they're going to go for a weapon. And so not that I exclude everything else, but at that moment where I'm making the decision, what is this person pulling out of their pocket? My tunnel vision is specifically to that hand and not to the person who's behind them or the person's eyes where I may be looking at the eyes, you know, before that to try to determine, Hey, is this person, you know, what, what's this, you know, cause you can tell a lot from the eyes. You can tell a lot from how a person stands and those types of things. But at that moment, that I'm trying to determine what is this coming out of their hand, my 
if I can train myself and if I can understand these are the things that you need to look at, because, you know, as, as an experienced officer, you've been in fights, you've, you've seen how quickly, you know, you're looking down to, you know, to, I don't know, to write somebody's name on a, on a book and that hand comes up and punches you, right? Like, so you, you start to realize this thing in real time. And I think naturally our brain kind of starts saying, okay, these are the things that keep me alive on the street, right? Like I look at the hands because that's, what's going to hurt me. So I think it's a skill that we can learn to a certain degree. And then um, obviously, you know, we have different performance levels and we're talking about like basically sports psychology. Um, So, you know, but any little bit that we can improve on and understand what we're looking at and why we're looking for these types of things could potentially help us survive and uh, make correct decisions in, in, in those stressful situations. And I'll throw it back to you because you have a a, a good kind of study that was done on stress and how it relates to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, to those that are asking online, viewing this live uh, about uh, links to research, I'll, I'll post a couple of links in the show notes of this episode uh, once it publishes. So uh, watch for that, John, uh, John, who is commenting on Facebook. And this is the, the, the intriguing thing where sports psychology meets shooting and self-defense, um, which, you know, there's, there's people that would have you believe that we can't you know, rely upon stuff from the sports world to carry over into self-defense world, um, that they're two very different worlds and, you know, this and that. But but the science is not showing that that's the case at all. The science is actually showing there's lots we can learn from, from sports players and high-performance um, individuals and get better as self-defenders, as law enforcement, as military, whatever discipline that you are in. In the uh, you know more the martial space you know the 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 fighting space, so um, yeah. So what you were touching on, and here's the thing. And I saw a comment from I think it was from John on Facebook earlier as well. And you just mentioned the uh, key phrase there, Matthew, referring to tunnel vision. This is something that's commonly been uh, uh, spoken about in high stress situations, where you know it's often understood, if you will, that well, you're going to get tunnel visioned in a self-defense situation. And so you're going to, you know, immediately be blocking out this, this stuff in your peripheral vision and that kind of thing. And there definitely is something to that. There is science that shows that that happens, that that absolutely happens, but it doesn't happen for everybody. And I would say that from what, and this is something I still hope to study further to understand it at a more at a deeper level, a more scientific level for myself. But from those that I have spoken with that have done some pretty high stress things, okay, people that have actually been in shootings and whatnot, not everybody experiences tunnel vision. Not everybody has visual occlusions or even auditory occlusion uh, that is often also referred to with uh, such types of events. And I believe that those that aren't as affected by those uh, sympathetic nervous system responses, if you will, are those that are able to remain basically cool and calm and collected during high stress, scary situations. Um, And so managing you know, one of the ways that they measure this in the scientific community is by measuring levels of cortisol in your system as you are experiencing a stressful event. All right. There's been a lot of studies done on that. So, again, that's something I'm also doing a deep dive on. Um, but um, I, I'm just mentioning that so you kind of understand, like, this is, this is stuff that can be measured. It can absolutely be measured. How stressed out is a person simply by looking at their levels of cortisol in their system. Okay. And so what we're beginning to see is a correlation between those that successfully use the so-called quiet eye have reduced stress in what would otherwise be stressful situations. So the quiet eye leads to less stress. All right. 
So that's a fascinating thing. So the belief, and in, in, in there is a specific uh, uh, research paper that you, I think, what's what you were referring to just a moment ago, Matthew, that actually discusses this and and bridges this 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 gap, if you will, uh, between these quiet eye theories and and specifically, this research paper was looking at law enforcement officer stress. Okay. Um, because it was written from that con you know, from that perspective it was actually, you know, trying to find ways to help police officers perform better. And so I'll, I'll I will make sure that that link is posted in the show notes of this episode as well. Um, um, that's a, that's a good one. And actually I think that one's referenced in the other one that I'm going to also share in the show notes. Um, but basically quiet eye. Okay. So the ability to be focused and directed and be purposefully looking for cues and things to begin formulating a plan and making decisions specifically reduces stress for the individual in a high stress situation. That's, that's phenomenal. So the belief is by teaching people how to develop their so-called quiet eye, how to see, and what they should be looking at and focused on can also become its own form of inoculation to stress. That's a fascinating thing to explore and to consider. So many people get so, you know, like, and here's the thing. I've, be- I've believed for a long time, because there's evidence of it, you know, a lot of times people will say something effective. Well, you don't know what you're going to do when you're actually in that situation. Well, that's generally a true statement because you don't know exactly what you're going to do because you've never been there, done that before. But I do believe that we can train and learn certain things that will be good predictors of us being able to perform under stress. And this is one of those things, I believe. I believe if we learn how to see and visually process information the way we should, that we develop this quiet eye, that we therefore will be able to better predict a higher level of performance under stress. And the science is leading towards supporting that. So, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to add in there. The, the stress thing is is really important because what we do is stressful right like when when you're when you're going to have to shoot on demand that is stressful right and and it's going to be involve a stressful incident and so if we can you know when you choke normally you know i don't know how many times like people will be like oh man i was really stressed out normally i shoot really well or normally i do this or i wouldn't have missed that shot if i would and it's like stress does a lot of things to make us choke and to make us kind of like not do the things that we should do, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and just my, you know, minutely, instead of focusing on our sites, maybe we, you know, because we want to move to the next position really quickly. And, and, you know, we take our attention off that site picture. We start moving just before we should, and we miss the shot or something like that. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that stress of wanting to get to the next point causes us to, to, not do what we know that we should. And so if we can reduce the stress of like everything else, kind of calm that stuff and we know what we're looking at, I, I, you know, this is what's kind of like we're performing better because we know what to focus on We, we mm-hmm. because we've practiced it, you know? And so mm-hmm. um, I think, I think that that is an incredible thing that I, I didn't realize until you had told me before the show that about that, that, uh, study and that's just to me that's like that's mm-hmm. that's in, important information very much is it could be life changing for well many of you listening to this but also those that really need it on a day-to-day basis and specifically those that work in law enforcement um some of this goes you know, ties in with, I mean, again, we could go really deep on some, some more psychology related stuff and, and more things again, that I've been studying in recent months. Um, but for instance, like we could talk about how 
there's kind of like two, I don't want to say halves, but there's like two parts of the brain. Um, you know, cause when I, when I use the word half, people will immediately think left brain, right brain, that kind of thing. And it's not always quite that straightforward, but, um, but there, there, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought, if you will, on, you know, there's, there's top, what, what's called top down processing and bottom up processing, um, which, which ties into, you know, those are both ex- explicit and implicit processes, uh, both those that are looking more outward and being more outward, uh, more directed by the individual uh, versus things that are more inward. Okay. So some of the factors that uh, build up stress are very much internal ones. Uh, just as a simple example would be fear of failure or fear of the unknown are two very simple implicit processes where, which are, which are uh, uh, typically associated as being bottom up processes or ventral uh, processes versus the dorsal part of that. Okay. So this, again, this, I'm going a little bit deep with this, but um, what this means is that like, for instance, you're involved in a situation and you're trying to read the situation, but you don't know what's going on. Just the, the, not the, the unknown can be its own failure point, you know, in, in your, in your mental process that you're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this dude's doing. I don't know what he's about to do. And therefore you have no plan. You have no direction and that will create its own uh, uh, level of stress because you don't know how to deal with that. Okay. Versus if you, maybe you don't know all the answers, but, but what you do know is, is this person a threat does he have a weapon? Is he threatening me with anything? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. What do I need to be concerned with? What do I need to be focused on? What do I need to be looking for? What do I need to be watching? And that in itself can create its own uh, uh, plan, if you will, in that, hey, if this, 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 or this happens, then I do this in response. And I'm looking at the things that are going to tell me what he is going to do or or might be about, you know, what his intent to do or, or what his intent is. And so um, that's uh, being more outwardly goal oriented or focused in reading a situation, trying, you know, and, and look specifically looking for the things that you need to be seeing to give you the, the, the decision making uh, 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 information, right? Uh, so, and not worry, you know, and, and not being lost it's the difference between being lost and having a plan essentially so i know some of this may not be making perfect sense and partly it's because i'm trying to talk around it in a general way versus like really just talk about it um because it's not the point of today's episode and we're actually running out of time too so um but you know as far as things we should be looking for well we've talked before on the podcast about pre-attack indicators um We've already talked in this episode about looking at hands or arms or specific body language sort of things or cues. I mean, if you see the shrugging of a shoulder and the elbow coming up, well, that ties in with someone drawing drawing a gun from a you know from their waistband pretty predictably a lot of times. Now it might be that it's a phone coming out, but you see this you immediately then your vision needs to go whew, to the hand, right? And you know already where you need to be looking. Okay. Cause then you're, then you're seeing as it comes out, what is it? Okay. Uh, and that's, that's very relevant. Um, yeah. Looking at the face, looking at the eyes can give information, but if that's the only thing you're focused on, then you're probably missing out on a lot of other information, Right. So that's what this was kind of about was te- you know, having the conversation about how to see, but also what to look for. And we could have gone deeper in that. And again, we can, we can do that even further in another episode, but we wanted to present to you the, the idea today about um, the importance of a directed purposeful gaze and its tie in with, decision-making and planning 
uh, actions in a stressful context and how that not only can uh, help you make better decisions, but reduce stress in those stressful events. And that has side benefits of perhaps avoiding getting tunnel visioned or um, missing out on, on certain pieces of information that are important to your survival. So anyway, I hope that was helpful for you today. Uh, again, I think that there's an opportunity here, I think, to explore some further things uh, in future episodes. And I also hope to invite on some guests, some experts in some of these fields. So something to kind of put on the roadmap for the future and look forward to, I hope. Uh, perhaps not everybody finds this interesting. I don't know. I'm not going to try to inundate you and and do nothing but this type of content for you know episode after episode <laughs> after episode, but occasionally come to this uh, type of topic because I think it's actually really useful information and very valuable if we can learn how to implement it and learn from it. Um, and and frankly, my personal opinion about all this is, is we spend a lot of time talking about or teaching about specific fundamentals or techniques and not talking about some of the more mm, non-obvious stuff, implicit stuff. Uh, I think we could spend a lot more time learning and studying about vision and it absolutely feeds into our ability to see, understand, and then act under pressure. Right on, man. That'll be my summary. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it was, is beneficial to me. I know we could get into, you know, a whole topic on or a whole episode on pre-assault indicators. And that's probably, you know, what a lot of people, we started it, get to that point and we will probably want more of that. So certainly we could do that in another episode. I think that that warrants it in an episode in itself, but as far as how this quiet eye to, you know, technique and, 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 um, study, um, can apply to us in a self-defense context. I think that, uh, or self-defense shooting context, I think, um, even, you know, law enforcement officers who are listening to the, to the podcast and stuff, um, you know, study that stuff and, 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 um, really pay attention because if we're only focused on the physical, you know, becoming better physical and as far as pulling the trigger or, you know, grip or whatever, that's great. But there is a whole psychological and whole visual um, component of how we perform. And if we're trying to perform to our best um, under stress, we need to tap into and understand that aspect of it too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, for, I mean, how many of you listening to the podcast had never been in a shooting uh, or a very violent event? And how many of you have sat there and wondered, like, do I, you know, do I have what it takes to perform under, under that kind of pressure? I don't know because I haven't experienced it. Right. Again, I think that there are some things here as we explore them, we can better predict performance um, with seeing, you know, with, with understanding some of these psychological and visual, uh, uh, you know, components like we've, we've discussed here today. So that I think is, is, yeah, that's, that's where I see the, the real meat here is giving people better training on things that helps predict better outcomes, even when they haven't experienced that ahead of time firsthand. Everybody knows, I think force on force is pretty valuable training. Uh, but no, you know, not everybody's able to get that, that kind of training, uh, if ever very often or even often enough. Um, and so even that's just one, one component, one piece. Well, let's go now to, uh, wrap up the episode again, today's episode sponsored by, Excess Sites, go to excesssites.com. Appreciate your support of our sponsors to make this possible. And also the Shooting Fundamentals course at concealedcarry.com, concealedcarry.com forward slash fundamentals to, uh, to either buy that course or, by the way, I didn't mention in the beginning of the episode, you, if you are a Guardian Nation member, you just get that course for free, including your membership. Like you get access to all of our video training content for free uh, or included in your membership. So, before we go, Matthew, we need to announce our weekly podcast 
giveaway winner. What are we giving away today? Right now, we're giving away a SSP Eyewear $50 gift card. Awesome. $50 mm-hmm. gift card, SSP Eyewear. Protecting your eyes is important. SSP Eyewear has uh, properly ANSI-rated eye protection for very good quality, you know, great, great price. I mean, they're, they're known for making quality products at a very affordable price. Uh, you can go to SSP Eyewear, of course, to uh, check out their products. And that's where that uh, uh, $50 gift card will be redeemable. At. So who's our winner of that? Our winner is somebody who normally is listening on Facebook or watching on Facebook, uh, Connor M. If, I don't know if you're, I haven't seen nice. your name pop up today, but Connor, yeah, I, was gonna say, I, I haven't seen him today, but he usually has been watching as of late. So Connor, congratulations. Uh, pretty sure you'll know who you are. And uh, I hope you get some good value out of that $50 gift card. So congrats, Connor. What are we giving away next week, Matthew? Next week, we're giving away a ready-up gear uh, ear clip, belt clip for your hearing protection. It holds your, so if you're like me and you always lose your hearing protection when you're out on the range or you leave it on something or it's on your head, clip that thing right on your belt and it's it's right there for you. Awesome. Great. So make sure you sign up at concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize to make sure you're included in next week's giveaway. Well, guys, we've got to wrap it up and let you go. So, Matthew, thanks for doing this with me. Thank you, sir. Thank you guys for listening. And so, folks, until next time, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Mm-hmm.